Our text for today comes from Luke 24, 50 to 53. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Well, good morning again. Uh, happy Mother's Day. Uh, it's no secret in our culture that the idea of mother and fatherhood is shifting a little bit. Moms are in, encountering new challenges, and so are dads for that matter. Uh, there is nearly a constant pressure exacerbi- exacerbated by things like social media that invites a kind of unhealthy level of comparison into our lives. And this tension, I think, is experienced very acutely by women in our culture. There are all manner of blogs and television shows that make women think they need to cook meals like that woman or run their social media platform like that woman over there or build a business like that woman, all while having kids that are well-behaved and athletic and academically inclined which you can't have all three of those things. You get to pick two, right? And that gets to be one of them. And I just want to state right here from the outset of the message today, before we even get into the sermon, that that's all a lie. It's it's not true. Social media lies. Television shows lie. The pioneer woman lies. the, The barefoot Contessa lies, right? I watch a lot of cooking shows. And even the patron saints of decor and lifestyle themselves, Chip and Joanna, lie. They're all liars. Is that blasphemy? Do I get taken out of this place? Now, this is not necessarily because they're bad people. I don't know them, right? But they lie because they don't tell the whole truth, do they? They don't tell the whole truth. Because the real truth of our lives is not seen in social media posts or perfectly prepared dinners or uh, perfectly curated anything, right? That's not where the real truth of our lives is lived. That, this stuff is a lie because that's not what life actually looks like, and anybody who's lived a life knows that, right? You see, it's easy to compare yourself to the life of someone on a TV or podcast and think, well, I just don't really measure up, do I? But neither do they, <laughs> Because that is their curated life, not their real one. And the struggle with comparison that is waged in so many of our minds uh, in our day is, I think, one of the most significant spiritual battles in our day. I really do. And it is leading so many people, and women specifically, to a kind of despondency and anxiety, feeling overwhelmed and underappreciated, really. But there's good news. There's good news. And the good news is that the way of Jesus can provide us with a path out of those cycles of comparison and free us to live lives that we were always created to live. It really can. I believe that. Not to make our lives free of clutter or of dirty carpet or not to live a life that's totally free of emotional difficulty. You can't Marie Kondo that stuff away. Nobody knows. Anyways, those things will always be there. They will always be there. 
but to progressively step into the knowledge of God's love and the awareness of his presence in such a way that those cultural voices and internal voices can grow quieter in our minds. And that the voice of God's abiding love, his presence through the Holy Spirit with us can grow increasingly louder. And part of the way that the Bible helps us understand and even take into our own hearts the significance of this idea is through what the Bible often refers to as prayers of blessing. Prayers of blessing. When I was preparing this message on the ascension, which is what we're talking about today, I was really struck by verse 51 in our teaching text, right before Jesus ascends into heaven. So right as he disappears from the sight of his closest disciples, he is not teaching them. He's not teaching them. He's not giving them vital information. He's not telling them who to vote for in the next election or how to structure the church. This isn't what he, there were no elections in Rome, FYI. Uh, He's blessing them. He's blessing them. It actually says he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. The last thing that Jesus does before he leaves his disciples is he blesses them. Now, if you read through the Bible, no doubt you've read numerous examples of blessing in the scriptures. In the Old Testament, there's a lot of blessing. The patriarchs blessed their children. Uh, They all did that as a way of passing the blessing of God down from generation to generation. But also in Jesus' ministry and in the ministry of the apostles in the New Testament, blessing or prayers of blessing become this vital part of what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to believe in God. And in our culture, we are really unfamiliar with this idea of blessing or prayers of blessing. If you walked up to somebody today when you go to Applebee's after church, like I'm going to do, and you said, I bless you in the name of the Lord, they would look at you very, right, you'd get a strange look. If they sneeze and you say, bless you, then they would be fine with it. But if for just no reason at all, you walked up and said, I bless you, they would just have no clue what you were doing and would just look at you funny and walk away, right? In a good, in a good situation. But this idea of blessing is an essential part of the faith, of faith life in the scriptures. It really is. And, what, and so the question is, what is a blessing? What is a blessing in the context of scriptures? What is a blessing? A prayer of blessing in the scriptures is a projection or a proclamation of the good intentions of God over people's lives. That's what it is. It is simply the statement of God's truth over your life. A blessing is like a prayer that helps you remember and reconnect to the truth, the the grounded truth of reality amid all of the world's lies. This is what a blessing is. That God is for you and not against you. That he longs to turn his face towards you and that he has a purpose and a future for us. And in a world that is constantly communicating lies to us, sometimes we need blessings, don't we? We need to be reminded of who we are and how God feels about us. I know I do, right? We just need someone to come and speak the truth of how God feels about us over our lives, to receive that blessing and to walk forward into the future with hope and fresh vision. This is what we need. And so on this Mother's Day, I thought it would be fitting just to pray a prayer of blessing over all the women in the room. Is that okay? 
Is that okay? No, it's not okay? Uh, well, I'm going to do it anyways. Because <laughs> I want to. <laughs> because at Grace Community, we want to honor mothers, but we also acknowledge all the ways that Mother's Day, like Ashley said, can be difficult for some of us. And we want to affirm the indispensable role that women play as equal image bearers of God in the world. And so today, I want to just pray to proclaim God's good intention over your lives for a moment. So if you're a woman in this place, would you, I was going to make you stand up, but I'm not going to make you stand up. Is that okay? Uh, If you're a woman in this place, would you just put your palms up? Just, it's not something spooky. It's just a way of, uh, (laughs) sorry, it's just a way of saying, I received that. I received that blessing. This blessing is not magic. It's not more powerful because a pastor does it. It is just a blessing. It is just a proclamation of God's truth over your lives. All right? All right. Now, women in the room, may our Lord draw you to himself, and may you find your joy and sufficiency in what he says about you rather than in the voices of comparison. May you remember that you are a beloved daughter of the creator of the universe and that nothing can remove you from the power of his love. May you know that his plans for you are good and that he longs for you to grow and flourish under his hand. And may God turn his face towards you and give you peace, even in those difficult seasons where it feels as though peace is sorely lacking. And so, this morning, at Grace Community, I bless you as women In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen, and amen, and amen. So we're done today. No. (laughs) Men, I got stuff for you too. Uh, If I bless the men on Father's Day, they're going to be way more uncomfortable than the women were with that, just FYI. So here's something I want to say. I want to encourage you to do this. It's a biblical pattern. It's, it's, bless your kids. Bless your spouse. Speak the truth of God over their lives. Say to them, to their face, what God actually thinks and feels about them. This is a powerful thing. I had a friend who um, had a lot of, uh, took a lot of trips to Israel. And what he always said to me was so interesting is the way that uh, Jewish fathers and mothers put their hands on their kids and bless them bless them before they leave the door, before they, before they walk out the door for school. They bless them, and it's this incredible witness both to the faithfulness of God in their lives, but also encouragement to their hearts, right? It's a beautiful practice, and so I would encourage you to do it. There's a lot of prayers of blessing in both the New and Old Testament. You can find one of them and uh, ad- adapt it and pray it over your kids or over your spouse or over your friends, whatever you want to do, but do it Seriously, it's helpful, and it it reminds us of the goodness and faithfulness of God. All right? All right, good, good, good. So, but we're not done with today. We got a little bit more to do. Today we are covering uh, the ascension of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus from the, the end of the book of, of Luke, but Luke also covers the ascension again one more time. At the beginning of his second volume, the history of the church that we call the book of Acts, he again repeats the story of the ascension, both tying those two books together in a sense, but also communicating to us that the story of Jesus's ascension is a very important story. And in order to understand what's happening there, we kind of got to delve into it. 
One thing that is, stands out to me in a really kind of acute way when I look at this is that very few of us understand what the ascension signifies. We don't always know what it means. In our context, in the Western world, we kind of have an understanding of what the resurrection means, that it's this big and important thing, that Jesus conquered death, hell, and the grave. But we don't always understand what the ascension means. It's the passage that we read today is kind of a short one. We, we can gloss over it if we're reading the scriptures. And when you pick up the, the, the New Testament, you begin to read the book of Acts, you can also, again, gloss over the ascension as though it's something that's just kind of strange, that Jesus levitated, I guess, into the sky and then disappeared. It's just something we gloss over. But Christian accounts of the ascension are vitally important. It's actually in the, some of the first Christian creeds that, that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. And all over the New Testament, we see the New Testament writers emphasize it time and time again, that the ascension is a por- an important piece of our faith. So the question this morning is, what does it mean? What does it mean, and why is it important for us? Why is it important for us? So that's what we're going to, going to explore today. Now, for many people, particularly uh, people who are skeptical of faith or people who don't have any faith at all, people have used the story of the ascension, in, particularly in both of Luke's accounts of it, to point out and say that Christianity is not true, particularly because the ascension feels a little bit mythological, this person, Jesus, who was raised from the dead, is now kind of levitating into the sky and then disappears. It feels like, at times, it could be a kind of religious fabrication because of how it feels almost mythological. Like he, and, and the questions come to our modern minds, too, when he, when he ascends into the sky and disappears. Like, okay, where is he now, right? Jesus, uh, Jesus kind of levitated into the sky, but where is he? Because this very idea of ascending to our modern and rational minds just feels weird, doesn't it? And when we read it, we say in our heads, oh, that's just something that people uh, believed before they had telescopes, right? (laughs) That you could just kind of disappear into the sky and go be with God. But now we know, right? Now we know all the planets and all the galaxies and all of the things. We know that heaven isn't technically up there because we can see up there, right? This is what the modern mind believes. But to look at this passage, and we would be mistaken to believe that these ancient people, these Christian people who gave us the scriptures, had this kind of naive view that they just believed heaven was up and that everything, and that that's where Jesus went. This isn't actually true. I read multiple scholars this week who all argued that ancient Mediterranean people had language like this about Jesus going up or ascending as a way of, uh, literally into the clouds, as a way of talking about what had happened to Jesus. But they didn't literally believe that if you had, if you just had a clear enough view, you could see heaven and see Jesus. This wasn't what they believed. Rather, they were, they, they used language in a metaphorical way, the same way we do, about going up and coming down, or something being up and something being down as being good or bad. We use language like this all the time. In the religious mind of that day, to be up or heavenly, to be upward was good, and to be down or earthbound was not so good, right? This is the same for us. What do we say when somebody uh, really messes up in their life? We say they hit rock bottom, right? And we listen to Josh Groban songs. I don't, but you might. 
and he says, you lift me up, right? Do you want me to sing it? No. He says, you lift me up, right? What does, what is, what does he mean there? He just means you make me feel good, right? Up represents good, down represents bad. We, we understand this. It's a figure of speech. It's a way of metaphorically associating both good and bad things. And early people believed that Jesus was somewhere, but they did not believe he was just like out of sight in the sky. They actually believed that he had departed and that he was now with God in God's reality. There isn't a cosmology that says the heavens are up here and we're down here. This wasn't what they believed. Now, if you're scientifically inclined in the room and you want a better explanation than that, (laughs) I'm not the person to give it to you, (laughs) okay? Um, But very often in a room this size, there are people in the room who go, but I need a better explanation. Where actually did he go? And as I said, I'm not the person to, to process that with you, but there are people. One of them, if you, like I said, if you're interested in this thing, there's a guy named John Polkinghorne. He's a physicist and a theologian at Cambridge University, and he's wrote, written a lot of books about these types of things to help us uh, understand the kind of confluence of faith and science. So if you're the type of person who likes to get into that stuff, John Polkinghorne actually addresses this issue um, specifically in one of his books. But like I said, if your brain isn't asking that question, then don't worry about it. <laughs> I, I, I routinely believe that there are some people whose brains just nag at them and they need to answer all the questions, and there are other people who go, like, I'm good. I definitely don't need to read that book. And I go, great. That's fine. As long as you know that there are people who are engaging with those questions. But the account of the, the ascension, and the reason this is important, is the account of the ascension is not a question about where Jesus is physically so much as it is about who he is and what he is doing. These, these are the questions that the ascension is trying to answer. The ascension is not trying to answer a physical question about where Jesus is actually located. Rather, the ascension, the story of the ascension is trying to communicate to us who Jesus is and what he's doing. And the ascension communicates something to us about the person of Jesus and his mission, first and foremost. So, what's the point? So, what is the point, then, of the ascension? I'm glad you asked. Jesus' ascension means three things. We're going to cover them this morning. Three things. First, I think it it, it communicates to us about Jesus' kingship. Second, it communicates to us about Jesus' mission. And third, it communicates to us about Jesus' presence, Jesus' presence with us. And so, this morning, we'll hop into the first one. So first, kingship. Jesus' ascension is meant to be understood as a kind of coronation, where he takes his rightful place at the right hand of God as the world's true king. And we know this because the language Luke uses to describe what happens to Jesus in these passages is very reminiscent of the language that the prophet Daniel, Daniel uses, specifically in Daniel chapter 7, to talk about what it looks like when the Messiah, God's anointed leader, will establish his kingdom. There's, there's a lot of resonance in the language that Luke uses and the language that Daniel uses in Daniel 7. I don't have time to go into all of that detail this morning, but if you want to read Daniel 7 in, in uh, conjunction with some of the ascension passages, you'll pick up a lot of those themes. It's clear that early Christians believed that this is what was happening. Early Christians believed that Jesus was still resurrected, that he was still alive, 
And when they taught, but that he had ascended to heaven, that he, though he was still resurrected, he was still fully alive, he was in some true sense now with God, ruling and reigning. And when they were talking about Jesus, they talked about it like that. And they talked about it a lot, that he had ascended to the right hand of the Father. In Acts 7.55, we see reference to this. In Romans 8.34, in Ephesians 1.20, in Colossians 3.1, in Hebrews 1, there are all these examples of these early Christian writers talking about where Christ was now, now that he was no longer physically present. And they all talk about him being at the right hand of the Father, no longer with humanity physically ministering, but rather ascended to God, overseeing God's kingdom, exercising God's rule, uh, uh, interceding for people, establishing his divine government over the earth. This is what Christ was doing now. And the ascension signifies that he is the king, he is the head of his church, and he is overseeing the work of the building of his church. This is what the ascension communicates to us. The ascension is not the end of Christ's work. It is the beginning of a new phase. The theologian Thomas Oden says it this way. He says, the ascension marked a decisive transition. It showed that the period of Christ's resurrected bodily appearances had come to an end, and that he had returned exalted to the Father to intercede, establish, and consummate his, uh, his divine governance, his earthly ministry complete, his heavenly ministry begun. And this should give us great confidence. Now, you might ask, Nick, why, why does this give me confidence? He's not around, right? I can't see him. It should give us confidence because we serve a resurrected Lord who is now enthroned as the king of the universe and is actually working to establish his church in the world. It's like Jesus got elected, and now he's in the Oval Office administering the work of the kingdom. This is kind of what it's like. You know how people feel really confident when their person gets elected and is president? Everybody's got a person, right? I'm sure you're already thinking politically and we're going we're gonna, to, I'm going to do three weeks on politics in the fall because if I wait another year, it'll be too late. Um, but, uh, but we all have our person, right? And when our person is in office, whoever that might be, whichever side of the aisle you fall on, you feel confident, don't you? You feel safe if it's your person in the office. We say things like, I'm sure glad I got my man in office. He can take care of it, right? We say things like this. We feel this way. And that turns out to be a bad belief because presidents are people. (laughs) And just like you and me, they are totally flawed and will let us down, every single one of them. But the ascension teaches us that we do have our man in office. And this man can handle the affairs of the world, right? Because he was resurrected from the dead and lived a sinless life. And now he is in the Oval Office administrating the affairs of his church. And this should give us great confidence. Far more confidence than if your person gets elected to office in a year and a half or whatever. It should. It should. Because the person running the world is the resurrected and ascendant King, Jesus. And to place our trust and our faith in him to vote for him, in a sense, with our lives, is to have great confidence that he will run the world well, right? 
that he is overseeing the church, and that he will do what he, will, what he is planning to do with efficiency and with his authority and in his good time. It's a way of trusting God. The ascension shows us that we should trust God, which leads us to our second point this morning. The second thing that the ascension teaches us about is about mission. It's about mission. The ascension kicks off the mission of the church. Luke tells the story of the ascension twice. So he tells it first at the end of his gospel, which is the story of Jesus, and he tells, the, he tells it again at the beginning of the book of Acts, which is the story of the birth of the church. We're going we're gonna to spend all summer in the book of Acts, so this is a little bit of, of a primer for that. But in chapter 1, verse 7, when, he's, when Luke is again telling or giving the details of the ascension, he adds something in Acts that he, that he leaves out in his gospel. Beginning in verse 7, he says this, He said to them, It is not for you to know the time or the dates the Father has sent for his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is in, in Luke's second account of the ascension. This is right before Jesus ascends. This is like the, the preamble before the blessing and the ascension. The ascension is seen within Luke's gospel as the kind of kicking off point of the church's mission. To go into all the world, to be witnesses, to be martureo in, in the Greek, where we get our word martyr about the truth of the resurrected Lord and the new world of, for, of the forgiveness of sins and righteousness that he is ushering in. This is what the ascension does. Jesus uh, tells us this explicitly in his ascension. In the resurrection, Jesus is vindicated as king of the world, and we see that, that, he, the, that, the, that the curse and sin and the power of Satan are overthrown and broken. And now in Jesus's ascension, he is magnified and exalted as the world's true king, and his divine rule kicks into high gear as a worldwide plan of redemption and renewal is begun. And at the right hand of God, he is about the work of guarding and guiding his, faith, his faithful community, the church, towards the fulfillment of the promises of God. This is what Jesus is doing. And this is exactly what we see in the book of Acts, actually. When you, when you read further in the book of Acts, there's just this ragtag group of disciples. Most of them are still licking their wounds when Jesus ascends into heaven, and they begin this kind of global rescue plan. They become this outpost of God's love and reconciliation in the world, and, it, and it's this powerful picture of, of the message of Jesus and of God's plan of renewal and restoration moving ever further out like concentric circles out into the world. You see, the message of Jesus from that place spreads all over the world. To see individual hearts reconciled to the Creator, to join Jesus in His plan of overturning the curse and sin, to be able to work with Jesus against the powers of darkness that keep people oppressed or deluded. And so, if you are a Christian, you are a post-ascension person. And you have a mission. You have a mission to partner with the resurrected Lord of the universe, to see his love and redemption and his renewal take up, take up root in the world, 
to see people redeemed and restored into right relationship with God, to see corrupt systems and powers be put right in the name of Jesus, to see communities and people liberated and set free, restored to health. You are, if you are a post-ascension Christian, you have no choice. This is what you are a part of. This is what you are a part of. Because this is what it means to believe in a renewing and, re- and reconciling God of love in the person of Jesus. And this is why the local church is the hope of the world. Surprisingly enough. Because it is through Jesus' church that he is doing this work of renewal. It is through his church, as flawed and broken as that community is, that exercises God's mission in the world, that executes it. And to be a follower of Jesus and to be a part of the church is to have this mission. This is what it is. If you follow Jesus, you follow an ascended Lord who has left you a mission to do. Who has left you a mission to do. To be his ambassadors of renewal and reconciliation in the world. You have no choice. You have no choice if you follow Jesus. It is just what you're a part of. And it's just the work that Christ is is overseeing in heaven at the right hand of the Father. You know, so often when we think of faith, we think of it in really personal terms, right? And I use this language a lot, and I think it's appropriate, but we think of it as kind of my personal faith journey. And while there's some truth to that, and we're all on a journey, and we all have faith, and we all have to process through what it means to be a follower of Jesus, the picture of what God is doing through the church is far bigger than your journey or my journey. It is. And until you capture a vision of that larger picture of renewal and restoration, then you will never live fully into the journey that God wants you to live into. Because God wants to give you a hope. He wants to give you a purpose. He wants to give you a mission. He wants to give you a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Right? And to be a follower of Jesus, to identify with Jesus as the resurrected Lord, to put your faith and your trust in Him is to take on a mission that is bigger than you, that is larger than your problems even. He wants you to be an instrument in His hands of renewal and reconciliation in the world. And once again, this is why the local church, like us, just FYI, I mean us in this room today, are the hope of the world. Because the church, as a gathered body, is the vehicle through which God is going to accomplish his mission. A bunch of little local expressions of the kingdom of God in the world. That's it. That's it. I believe it so much. that. And here's the thing. When we are gathered in this room together as this local body, as this local church. We gather in this room together, and we can kind of have a, oh, me kind of attitude. Like, it's just us. We're just at church. We're going to sing some songs, and we're going to hear a message, and then we're going to walk out the doors. But the vision for what God has for us is so much bigger than that. And part of the difficulty in our 21st century world is just to see it, is just to pay attention to what God is doing and see what he wants to do in and through us and to participate with him on that mission. It is so big, and it has so, much, so many different ramifications for our community and for our work and for our lives together as friends 
It has, it has so many different facets and aspects to it, but it is so very true. The ascension shows us that the church should be on mission, headed in a direction, communicating the love, the reconciliation, and the renewal of the kingdom of God that Jesus longs to bring into existence through his church. This is what the ascension means. And that leads us to the third point, which is that the ascension teaches us about presence, about the presence of God. Before Jesus even ascends into heaven, before he is even crucified, there are passages in the New Testament where he tells his disciples that he's going to leave them. He's not going to be around for as long as they want him to be around. And after his, erection, uh, his resurrection, there's, uh, in John 20, he's speaking to Mary Magdalene, one of his closest followers, and she's clinging to him, obviously, because she thought he was dead and now he's alive. And he says this very funny thing. He says, don't hold on to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father. Like, this is not the point. Don't hold on to me, which is a strange thing to say, isn't it? I don't think Mary's response was strange, but Jesus' response feels strange to us. There is this through line through the Gospels that when Jesus leaves his followers, when he departs, something monumental is going to happen. Something earth-shattering is going to take place. And that is that when Jesus departs, his presence will come in a way that it has never come before. And though he will no longer physically be present with his people, in the same way that he was when he was physically ministering on the earth, his presence will still be with them, his real presence, in a way that is even more significant because the Holy Spirit will be present in the hearts of his people. And the Apostle Paul kind of broadens this out even in Ephesians 4 when he's actually talking about the ascension, he also implies that Christ's ascension means that now the whole universe in some special way is filled with the reconciling love of God. So from the perspective of the New Testament writers, Jesus' de departure means that his real presence via the Spirit is now abundantly available to everyone. Because when, because when Jesus departs, when Jesus ascends, it means that the Father could send the Spirit, and that Spirit can dwell closely, even in our own hearts. Now, this sounds really strange and kind of science fiction-y. I realize that. It's not Star Trek. It's actually one of the most powerful things about the Christian faith. It's this powerful belief that God dwells with his people, really and truly dwells with his people. And his love is universally available to every human being. That is phenomenal. You don't have to go anywhere to meet with God. You don't have to do anything specific. Rather, the presence of God is open and available to everyone all the time. It changes the way you live your life if you're cognizant of this reality. 
this love of God is always pursuing, is always towards us, is always for us, is always moving in our direction, longing to redeem hearts. This is always what the love of God is doing. And the reason this is important is because if you're like me, you forget this sometimes. You forget this sometimes. You remember when we took the Enneagram a few weeks, a few months ago? Does it, you remember that? Is this just a personality assessment? I am a, a four on the Enneagram, which is a romantic. No, that's not what it means. Uh, it, it simply means that uh, I, am, I am kind of driven by my emotions, which means what I'm feeling in any given moment, I believe to be the truth, right? Which I think is true of a lot of us, but it's particularly true of me. And so what this means for my own life is that when I don't feel God, I assume that he's not there, Right? Because when I don't feel him, I just assume that he's not there. But the ascension teaches me that even if I don't particularly feel him at a given moment, he is present with me, right? And he's present with you. And today I think there's people in this place who really need to hear that, probably. That the loving presence of God is available to you, even if you don't feel it. Whether you are a follower of Jesus and you need to be reacquainted with that love and reminded of Jesus' presence with you today through the Holy Spirit, or if you are in this place and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, and the presence of the risen and ascended Lord of the universe is a thing that just feels foreign to you, today his presence is available to you as well to reconcile your heart back into relationship with God so that you can find a family called the church and a mission and purpose and direction and hope and life and all of the beauty that is involved in that. You see, if we truly understand the ascension, we truly understand that God is with us, that he is not distant, that he is not far away, that he is not angry, but rather that his presence is close, that it's available, and that he's with us. And so today, as we close on this Mother's Day, what I just want to do before we head off to lunch, before we do all of the things that we do today, to just take a beat, just to take a second and open ourselves up to the possibility that God's presence is here and that it wants to meet with each of us that, it wants to, that, that God wants to know you, and that even if you don't feel it in this moment, His presence is with you. And so if you just bow your heads and close your eyes, I just want to pray for us this morning. Pray that we would feel and know the loving presence of a God who longs to reconcile us back into relationship with Him and longs to show us to communicate His love to us. Jesus, we love you. And we thank you for bringing us together today. We thank you for your cross, that you died for our sins, that you were resurrected, defeating death and sin, and that you now are at the right hand of the Father, ascended into heaven, and that because of that, your presence, your real presence is available to us. And so, Father, I pray specifically first in this place for those of us who don't feel the presence of God. Maybe we've been heavy laden this week. Maybe we've been burdened by depression or anxiety. Maybe there's some type of relational strife, some difficulty, some sadness in our lives that has blocked our sense of the, the real presence of God in our lives. And I pray right now in the name of Jesus 
that for those of us who have struggled to experience the presence of God, that your, uh, your real presence would be here with us. That those of us who have struggled to experience and to know that you are present with us would know that right now. And that as we go today, God, that we would know that the presence of God is with us and that we could take that, we could take confidence in that reality. And Lord, I also pray for those of us in this place who might not have ever even considered the fact that the, that the love and presence of God is available to them. Father, if there's anyone in this room, God, who's never uh, come into contact with the, with the love of God, has, has never fully placed their faith in the person of Jesus and experienced what it is to be reconciled into relationship with the creator of the universe, I pray for them right now that they would feel and know your presence, that they would experience your goodness and your grace, and that they would come into relationship with you. God, we love you, and we thank you for gathering us together here today. We ask that as we go this week, we would continue to be reminded of your love towards us, your ever-present uh, reality in our lives, and the hope and the mission you've called us to. We pray it all now in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. If you're in this place and you've never encountered the love of God and you felt that today, I'd love to talk to you after we're done with service. So I'll be down front if you want to come talk to me about what that means for you. I'd love to have that conversation. All right? All right. Happy Mother's Day. Go today in the grace and in the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks. Thanks.